Take your Bibles and turn to, unless you still have it turned to, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to focus on just a couple of verses today uh, that I hope will be encouraging. I've never, well, I've never preached through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I've never preached this passage of Scripture or perhaps any like it. Uh, You see the title is God's Will for How You Are to Live in the World. Um, I thought about calling this message today in praise of plodding, P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G, not plotting, but plotting in praise of plotting. It's an exhortation from the Apostle Paul going back to what we read just a few minutes ago that basically says this, this is how this hit me, and I hope it'll hit you the same that if you really want to be a great Christian, that you'll go back and you'll see that your aim ought to be to please God. We've talked about that a few weeks ago, that we need to grow in holiness, we need to grow in our love for one another. Jim Jackson preached on that. But now we come to a passage of Scripture that really talks about not just good advice, but growing out of the good news, how we can be great Christians. So let's direct our attention for the reading to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That will be the focus of the message today. Let me back up halfway through verse 10, where Paul gets to urging. That's what he does a lot. He urges. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, goes without saying, to do this more and more, and he connects it, and to aspire to do several things, to live quietly. Second thing, to mind your own affairs. Third thing, to work with your hands as we instructed you And the outcome is so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So let me paraphrase that. And you see it basically in your notes, in your outline, as you sit down and you'll look at that. Be quiet. Here's how you become a great Christian. Be quiet. I could have said, shut up. But when my kids were growing up, that was a bad word, so I don't want to say bad words in the pulpit, so I marked it out and said, be quiet. Be quiet, keep your heads down, mind your own business, work hard, don't be a mooch. That's how you become a great Christian. Father, I pray that you would show all of us what you're up to in our lives individually, in our homes. I think of relationships between husbands and wives that could really use this. I think of relationships between parents and children. They need to hear these words. I think of those in the church that need to be encouraged. They feel so small. They feel that other people that are up front teaching or preaching are the great Christians, and they're not. Help them to see as priests that you've given them a calling to fulfill. And greatness is not based 
on being loud in what we do and what we say, but it's based on certain character qualities of the heart. So help us to understand that, to look at it, and to be changed by it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've got your outline in front of you, so let's start on that. The first thing that Paul says, at least in the English Standard Version here, is aspire to live quietly. Do you want to be a great Christian? The first thing you need to do is to aspire to live quietly. Now, this is a great word. All the words of Scripture are, are great. But this word aspire means to study, to learn, to, to, to seek out what God says about what it means to live quietly. Also, it is the word that is translated in other places as make it your ambition. In other words, from the youngest to the oldest, your ambition, your aim in life, number one, ought to be to live quietly. Does, does this surprise you? Is it important? You know, it's always good to do a, a word study. That's the way you study to learn what this means. Paul uses this word that is translated, make it your aim or aspire to live quietly. He uses it three times. And I think it's noteworthy as to the three things that he, had mention, he mentions as to what ought to be your goal. Now, if you do not, students, hear me, if you do not aspire to be a great Christian, then this is not going to make any sense to you. Young adults, median adults, parents raising children, children, older adults, if you're not living your life so as to please God then this really will not make sense to you. But here's what he says. He uses three different, three different verses where he talks about the aspiration, the ambition that you and I ought to have as Christians. The first one is this, and we've already mentioned it here in this passage, but he mentions it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And here's the context. He's talking about, I want to go home and be with Jesus. Does anybody here ever feel like that? And I didn't see just old people raise their hands or nod their head. So whether you're at home or you're with the Lord, this is what he said, or away with the Lord, we make it our aim. This is our goal in life. This is our aim to please him. Do you see what kind of ramifications this has for all of life? We start out raising our children by giving them do's and don'ts. By the way, what's the one command that a child, until he gets a little bit older and begins to understand the expansion of those things, what's the one command that a young child needs to know? What is it? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, you're, you're going to have to expand that, parents, as they get older, because you don't want to raise just a bunch of little Pharisees. And their life becomes just a moral sense of struggling between, between the do's and the don'ts. You want to raise somebody who is born again, right? And who with all of his or her heart desires to please God. Make it your aim. That is our message. Our aim is to please God. 
no matter what we're given to do, no matter what the circumstance. Even in unprecedented times, our aim is to please God. That's the first time, the first instance that I'm sharing with you that Paul says that. But he says it a second time. I have another aspiration. I have another ambition, he says. Now, he says it about himself, but I'm applying it to all of us. And I thought this week about Dave Robinson being with us, and then last week in our ABF classes that we, we, we talked about that, we, we crunched how that needs to look. How do you live that out to become a cojourner, come alongside, be an alongsider? See, alongsiders and cojourners are not there to preach first. They're there to come alongside. But the ultimate ambition, you ask the question, it, that Dave taught us is sometime I'd like to get together and hear your journey, hear your spiritual journey. Would that be okay? Your ambition is to do what? Just hear that person's story? Well, yes, genuinely, but also the ambition that you have, and you, you get this because this is your spiritual journey as it was Paul's, to preach Christ to preach the gospel to him. Now, here's the third time that he uses it. Now, those were pretty lofty. Please, God, preach the gospel. Be quiet. And, and you, you think, now, wait, wait, Paul. What, what, what are you talking about? To, to lead, he puts them all together, and they're all related to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, to work with your hands. We, here's the thing. We don't normally think of ambitious people, people with a lot of aspirations, a lot of ambition, as being quiet, do we? They're normally the ones that are out there. They're going to tell you, I'm going in this direction. Follow me if you want to get on board. But we don't normally think of them as being quiet people. Now, let, let, let's unpack this because there, there's a lot here. Some people, and I know people like this, some people are naturally quiet people. I mean, silent. They don't talk a lot. And so they're going to like this. Okay? Yeah, preach on, brother. Now, you may think that I'm really the talkative type, and, and in one sense I am, but when I get home, I'm the quiet one, okay? I'm the, I'm the listener. Sometimes Jan has to pull things out of me. So quiet people will normally be drawn to this. L let me give you something, just a hint for you husbands and wives. Husbands... If you are less verbal than your wives, don't say after today's sermon to your wife, the Bible says you are to be quiet. What is, what is the goal in this? See, sometimes we just, oh, oh be quiet. And do. The goal in all of this is to be, listen to this, a godly witness, not by trying to do something great. If God gives you something great to do, then do it. And we're going to define that in just a minute because the world's definition of great 
and God's definition of great are not always the same. So your ambition is not, I've got to do something great for God, but it's to live, get this, it's to live a life that demonstrates a quiet confidence and commit contentment and peace in Christ. And out of that grows disciplined love. Here's the context of this passage. Some of you might be newer. We, we've been going through, we normally do this, go through books of the Bible and try to just pull out the meanings. They're always related to the larger picture of the Bible. They're related to the New Testament. They're related specifically to this particular book. And you've got to understand that there's a context here. And here's the context. I really believe that we're, we're living in a day that really hasn't changed a lot over the last 2,000 years because here's the situation specifically to which Paul spoke to the church in Thessalonica. Remember, there were new Christians in this church, and they were on fire. All you have to do is go back to chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and you'll see that they were on fire for the Lord, but they were immature. And when, mark this down, when immature Christians are on fire for the Lord, they get restless. They want to do something for the Lord. And the thing that they were caught up in was eschatology. Does everybody know what that word's, word means? I'm not saying this to impress you like I can define these big words. By the way, if you have a chance, students, take Latin in high school. If you have a chance, Latin is a wonderful language. I, you, you learn that many of our words today and many biblical words are really based out of the Latin and in the Greek. Eschatos just means last things, end times. Logos means words about. It's the study of last things. Now, here's what's interesting. How many of you believe that we're living in the last days? Whoa, quite a sizable crew. Church at Thessalonica, because guess what? So did they. Now, I, I can't wait to get into the next, cha uh, the next verses in this chapter because it deals with Christ coming again. One of the first things it, it is is an encouragement about those who have died, those who have gone on before. But then he gets into watching for the Lord coming back. That is not a new thing. It didn't start in the late 1800s with C.I. Schofield. These young Christians who were mature were caught up in the study of last things. Let me say this. It is appropriate for us to think about the Lord's coming. The Bible says it. It gives encouragement. I think it makes us long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is essential to sound doctrine. That's why one of the reasons I chose this book, you know, when we're going through these things that we call in our country unprecedented, that Christians have been going through for many years, millennia, then we need to look at those. That's why we studied through the book of Joel, and that's why we're studying through 1 Thessalonians to try to say, how, how do we respond in these kinds of times to give hope? 
But here's the thing that these young believers fell into. Now, I don't know that you've ever seen it, because I have, and I'll give you an illustration of that. It's easy to fall into unbiblical, fanatical excitement. Focusing on the end of the world so much so that you neglect the normal daily duties of being a Christian. And that's what was happening. What normal daily duties? Just what we've been talking about. What's one of the normal daily duties that in chapter 4, I read it at the very beginning of our time today. To seek to please God. That's a normal daily duty. Seek to please God. How do you do that? By seeking to be pure. Normally, I, I lean over toward the students. So that, that's, that's a young person's problem. That's a, that's a problem. He was talking to all of these. How, how do you, on a daily basis, seek what God wants from you? You, you seek purity. And then he says you seek brotherly love. And then he gets to something. These are all normal daily duties if you're a follower of Christ. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, this is probably not going to make a lot of sense to you. But then he gets into these daily duties of live a quiet life. Mind your own affairs, your own business. Work hard with your hands. All of this is tied to our relationships with others and our relationship to our work and uh, um, they just had a problem. In fact, I didn't put this down on the screen, but I wrote it down this morning. Second Thessalonians 3, just turn there for a minute. I'll, I'll just read this to you and show you how that it's all tied together because he's going to come back in his second letter and mention it again. It's good to repeat, okay? But in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to what he says here. It kind of expands on it. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves, he's using himself as an example now, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work let him not eat. I could stop there. Well, I will preach. I was going to say I could preach a sermon on it. I will, the Lord willing, if he doesn't come back before I get to 2 Thessalonians. And we will talk about that. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing. Uh, I'm a child of the 60s and early 70s. I was a pseudo-hippie. Do you know what a pseudo-hippie is? Kind of a fake hippie. I wanted to look the part, like some Christians do. I wanted to look the part, but not really get into the whole hippie lifestyle. I had long hair. 
peach, farm out, right arm, you know, all around. I knew all the lingo. Some of you didn't catch that. <laughs> During the week, I worked all the way through college. I worked. I had a job. Went to school in the morning, worked in the afternoon. Had to. Needed to. But on the weekends, I was a hippie. And then something happened. Jesus happened. I, some of you know my story. I wasn't walking with the Lord and I had this incredible turnaround, radical 360 degrees experience. And I got involved with another group of hippies, but they were called something else. Anybody, anybody in my age group know what they were called? Jesus freaks. I was a Jesus freak. Larry Norman. You guys know who Larry Norman is? He was a musical artist. Jonathan, you're smiling. You, you know Larry Norman. Why does the devil have to have all the good music? That was one of his songs. Um, he was an old rocker that got saved. Anyway, and he, he kind of invented the one-way Jesus sign. So I had a little one-way Jesus sign on the back of my ratty uh, jeans and all the rest of that. And, and there was a group within this whole Jesus freak movement. It was really kind of a, a phenomenon that said, and they focused on guess what? Now, this was a long time ago, the 70s, subtract. How long ago was that? A long time ago. Yeah. And guess what their focus was on? The last days. And there were a lot in, in my age group. There, there were a significant group who wanted to drop out of college. They didn't want to go up on a mountain and wait for the Lord to come back. That wasn't their thing. They wanted to hit the streets, get out and preach Jesus because the time is short. He's coming again, so why in the world do I have to continue going to college? I want to be out there doing great things for God. They were easy targets for cults. And there were a lot of them that got wrapped up into cults and then that led to immorality and forsaking the faith altogether. You see, their genuine, listen, their genuine exuberance and, and I think many times sincere love for the Lord caused them to take a wonderful doctrine like the second coming of Christ and so focus on it that they forgot they had daily activities that they needed to do. They were obligations that they just needed to fulfill as young people. I talked to my pastor during this time, and he said, Marty, finish college. I, 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 I was a, one of those fanatics. I was. I was down on Dixon Street outside the local bars. I was witnessing to people and things like that. Maybe I need to do some more of that. And sometimes when these Jesus freaks came into the church, tr traditional churches, okay, a Baptist church was a lot more traditional back then. It was a big deal when drums were brought in, okay? No kidding. And they started singing praise songs and things like this. And so the Jesus freaks added a, a, a kind of an element of excitement and Man, you know, people were very friendly. I mean, genuine Christians were. Some of the old heads were, I, I don't know. They, anyway, but they added 
They added some life and exuberance to the church, but sometimes their conduct was undisciplined and it led to chaos and confusion in the church. And some of you are sitting there and you're saying, yeah, Marty, but I'm not an old hippie Jesus freak and I'm not going to get caught up in those excesses. Here's what you need to know about this passage of Scripture that we are studying today. The ways of God are counterintuitive to the ways of the world. Let's look at, it, at an example of this. And the same phrase where Paul says, make it your ambition, your aim, your goal to live a quiet life is the same exact phrase as where he tells women how to deal with husbands that are just not quite where they need to be spiritually. And there's power. You know, the, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that is not a popular passage of Scripture today. It is just not, but it's in there. I don't want, here are some of the things that, that will happen, but just before we look at this Scripture and the power of this principle of what it means to live a life of quiet confidence and trust and contentment in the Lord Jesus, how powerful it is. Because immediately when looking at a passage like this, people will say, yeah, but. What about when that husband is abusive? Yeah, but. What about, and they'll go off on all of these things, they'll take the exception and make them the rule. Okay? We'll talk about that. If you're in an abusive relationship, let, let's, let's walk through the scriptures on this. But here is a principle that, Paul, that Peter says about winning your husband when he's disobedient to the Lord, to the Word. He says, now, by the way, this is not a verse against makeup and wearing decent clothes, women, okay? I thank God for women who dress appropriately and who know how to dress up and wear nice clothes. I thank God for makeup. Okay? It, it, it's, I mean, it's okay that when people didn't have makeup, but, but here's, what he, here's what Peter is saying. Don't focus on that. Don't let that be your focus. Here's your ambition, women. Now, by the way, man, if, you, if you're getting, uh, uh, again, a, a lot of uh, mileage out of this, he comes back in verse 7 and says, you men, live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So we don't get off the hook. But here's what he's telling, and this is a principle. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a what? gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. And he goes on to say that, that if you do this, women, here's the general principle, you will win your husband without a word. That's what it means to make it your ambition to have a quiet confidence in the Lord. Don't draw attention to yourself with outward beauty. Let the true beauty and true manhood, by the way, verse 7, be the quality that people see. See, the goal, as I said a minute ago, is to be a godly witness. Not by preaching to your husband, 
Not by necessarily preaching and teaching, but through behavior that demonstrates contentment and peace in Christ. There's a second thing that is related. The second part of this verse 11. Now, here he says, mind your own affairs. There are some translations that says, that say, mind your own business. I know this sounds a little bit harsh. Be quiet. Mind your own business. But there is something here. As a Christian, you and I should care for the needs and the problems of other people. Now, get this. Add this to that without meddling in their business. You don't have to find out every thing that has led to their particular problem that you're trying to help. You don't have to say everything that you know or that you believe. And that is such a temptation. Now, what did they call that? Getting into other people's affairs, getting into other people's business. What did they call that in the old days? Yeah, meddling. Let me use another word. How about gossip? Everybody gossips. It used to be said, I think people are, are more discerning now, but it used to be said that one of the worst places for gossips to start is in a church prayer meeting. Now, I just want to share this for prayer about this sister. Or this brother. Well, today, you don't even have to go to the church prayer meeting to be a busybody. All you have to do is get on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And all of a sudden, one little tidbit is everybody's business. Now, this is, look, this is a problem for non-Christians. This is, this is the social media of, of Paul's day, the book of Acts. These are lost people. These are not saved people. These are people in, in Athens. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners, I mean, this was pandemic in, in those days, who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And I thought, that is a great definition of Facebook. But it's, uh, I, I know, Jim said something about it a couple of weeks ago. Social media is neutral. It's neutral. It's what we do with it. And Paul said to Timothy, the young pastor at Ephesus, he said, charge certain persons in the church not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations. You don't really have the facts. This is a speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. See, the, the, the problem with, and again, it's neutral. Social media is neutral. You, you hear me say that, don't you? The problem is everybody and anybody can be an expert. And it doesn't matter if they know anything about the subject or not they can become an expert, at least in their own minds. 
Have you ever noticed that people, Christians specifically, who choose to disobey the first part of Paul's command, that is to live quietly in quiet confidence of what God is doing, to trust God in all situations, to trust Him, they also generally disobey this second commandment in this passage. Now, let's go back to, to, to the, the, the particular problem. Some Thessalonians, and I'll bring it up to date, at least 50 years ago up to date, and some Jesus people bought into the fact that they could bring some energy and life into churches. But as I said a few minutes ago, most often they ended up being disruptive if they were off on a tangent. You know, it's easy. I, I, I say easy. It's easier to walk up cold to someone and get their attention and run through the gospel, give them a track and leave. It's easier to do that than to become a co-journer. If you weren't here for Dave Robinson, you're not going to understand that. To walk alongside. We have a ministry called Alongsider. That is where it gets tough because people know you. I was thinking about this and uh, I've got on my, uh, in my iTunes... James Taylor's greatest hits, live. And uh, I I love the little exchange between songs where he'll talk to the audience. And in one particular exchange, I thought, "This, this is so, this fits right here. Because, you know, the, the audience is quieting down. He's getting ready for another song. And uh, somebody, a, a, a girl, yells out, I love you! And everybody kind of chuckled. And he came back. I, I don't know if he had it already in his repertoire, but he simply said, it helps that we don't know each other. See, when you, when you choose to become a longsider, when you choose to have a relationship with someone and they begin to get to know you, that's where it starts getting challenging. And that's why Paul said, don't be a busybody. Don't get into other people's business. If they want to tell you, that's good, but keep it to yourself unless you get permission to share it with other people. But they didn't. After all, get this, the end of the world was coming. Jesus was coming back, so why bother with all of that daily grind stuff? There was a young man, and Jan will know who I'm talking about, in the first church that I pastored after being a youth pastor in two churches, and went to this church, and this young man, young family, great, just a a neat young man, and he got on fire for the Lord. And he really wanted to do great things for the Lord, but he was so consumed. In fact, I'll never forget, he tried to sing Keith Green's song, The Sheep and the Goats, one Sunday morning, and he never made it through the song. He was just weeping, and it, it was, it, really, it was kind of a disaster. But he was, he was very sincere. Would it surprise you if I told you that he was so focused on that? He was so fervent and so focused that he, he basically left his wife and family 
This is a problem on a human level. Now, this is a different matter, but it's the same principle. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, let's say business, whoever meddles in business not his own is like, and this is so graphic, a person who takes a passing dog by the ears. Parents, I hope that you're teaching, I know you are, you teach your children that if a strange dog comes your way, don't run up and try to, don't pull its ears because you'll probably get bitten. But it's also truth for Christians as well. Second Thess uh, 3.11, for we hear that some among you, I read this a minute ago, walk in idleness, not busy at work. And if you're not busy at work, what is prob- the probable outcome? You're going to be busybodies. I'm just going to give you some bullets here. Besides that, 1 Timothy 5.13, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Did you realize all these verses were in, I know you know the Proverbs has a lot about being an idle person and that kind of thing. But did you realize all this is in the New Testament too? Now here's another one uh, that, that I thought was a, was a good application of how serious being a meddler, not minding your own affairs, not minding your own business is. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the cause of Christ, Peter says. As a Christian, don't suffer as a murderer. Is murdering pretty bad? Yeah. Or a thief. Or an evildoer. And in this list, he includes what? A meddler. So what is kingdom focus? How do you become a great Christian? Please God. Be holy, be pure, love and serve the church and others, and leave the rest to God. Third thing, work with your hands, but everybody knows how to do this, don't you? Not the people that were in the church at Thessalonica. Their attitude was, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, why work? Let's be like the story of Mary and Martha We'll be the Mary, we'll sit at Jesus' feet, we'll let those Marthas in the church cook food and feed us. Because I've got to do great things for God. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, just just kind of put this into the hopper, see what you think of it. If I knew the Lord was returning tomorrow, okay, how would you apply this? He said this, if I knew the Lord was returning tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's like doing what you would normally do if the Lord didn't come back. I, I started thinking, what would I, literally, what would I do if I knew that tomorrow at 3 p.m., by the way, it could happen. Not saying it is. But what if the Lord you knew was coming back at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? How would your morning look? And I, st- I started thinking, I, I hope mine would, would look like this. I'd get up and have my quiet time. I'd drink a couple of cups of coffee. I'd read the Word and I would pray. And then I would go to breakfast. 
with the person I normally go to breakfast with, and then I would come to work, and I would start studying his word, and then at 3 o'clock. See, the whole thing is, if you're doing what you need to do, what the Lord has commanded you to do, you're going to be ready. If you say to yourself, oh, man, I've got to get ready. I've got to go see some people that I've got to confess to and repent. and You're not really ready. And in this case, folks had forgotten that great Christians are not about trying to do great things this is a great phrase. I think, again, of the students. I think of the students in school. Sometimes schools seem so monotonous and, oh, do I, or, or work if, if, you're, if you're working. Do what God has given you to do uncommonly well. Don't try to do great things for God. Just do what God has given you to do uncommonly well. You see, work is tied to being a priest, the priesthood of the believer. That's a Baptist tradition, isn't it? We believe in the priesthood of the believer. The way that's normally interpreted is, uh, you're not the boss of me. Seriously, that's the way most of the people take the priesthood of the believer. I I think for myself, so therefore you're, you're not the boss of me, and I'll just relate to the Lord. No, the priesthood, what does a priest do? What did a priest do in the Old Testament? Offered sacrifices. And priesthood is tied to work, which means if you are a priest unto God, if you're a born-again believer, then you are. You do what you do on Sunday, but you're also a priest on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday, not just in church, but also at home when your parents give you chores or your wife gives you a to-do list. You're a priest. You're offering a sacrifice in that work, in that study, in algebra class. You're offering your work as unto the Lord. One of the military branches, I think, got any Navy people here? It's not a job. It's a, well, don't have any Navy people here. This is an old commercial. It's not a job. Ed, you're a Marine, so they, you know. I'm not sure the Marines were an adventure, but this is what the old commercial said was, it's not a job, it's an adventure. And I love the spoof, it's a a commercial, it's a video that has that, and that it has all these guys doing laundry and latrine duty and peeling potatoes and, and stuff like that. Listen, I thought that is a perfect picture of the daily grind of the Christian. It's not always glamorous. Changing diapers as a young mom and just going and doing your work as unto the Lord. And you, you really don't realize that in giving your best every day to please the Lord, God is preparing you for something else. I'll give one more example from culture. But it, it just fits. The karate kid. Anybody ever see that? He wanted to do great things. In other words, he, he wanted to... Learn karate. So what did Miyagi tell him to do? Wax on, wax off. Sand the floor. Paint the fence. And finally, Daniel just throws down everything, gets mad. I wanted to learn karate. And he says, Miyagi says, ready. 
wax on, wax off. And he comes at him, and Daniel just learned. See, God could be preparing you in you being diligent to do your homework tonight instead of Xbox. Or to give it your best at your job or in your retirement to do the things that God, God is still giving you something to do. Care for a mate, maybe. Work is good. God spoke everything into existence and he gave work to man. Everything that God created was good. And this was before the fall when God gave work to do to a man, to the man. Several verses. I'm just going to let you see these. You know these verses out of the Proverbs, all the thing about toil and labor being good. By the way, idleness, all the verses about idleness, there's a difference between idleness and sloth and rest. Rest is a good thing. We need rest, but not idleness and sloth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then Paul says to Timothy again, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, we come full circle to the end of this. We're told to do three things. Make it our ambition. If we're going to please him, we need to be quiet, live those lives of quiet confidence. We need to mind our own affairs, our own business, and we need to work hard with our hands. Verse 12, so that we can walk properly in the world and not be, and I use several different words here. Anybody know what a mooch is? Don't be a mooch. Don't be a, I'll use another word, a leech. Don't be a sponge. Don't be a scrounge. We are responsible for the management of our income. We pay bills, live within our means, being generous, ready to share, share, and not as these folks were doing, mooching off of others, taking advantage of the system when you can work. And here's the old upshot to this. The gospel is only as believable as the changed lives of those who proclaim it. Father, I thank you for your word and how that in in a simple phrase uh, that, that you instruct us as to how we can really be great Christians by doing the things each day that you've given us to do. Lord, I, 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 I know I haven't done justice to this, but Lord, I pray that something, some phrase along the way, some passage or word uh, that you by the power of your Holy Spirit would take and that you would use to help us live lives that are consistently reformed according to the word and committed, making it our aim to please you in all that we do. I thank you and pray that if there is anyone that doesn't know you, that today he would see
the reality of his sin before you, a holy God, the reality that you sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice for that person's sin, and by repentance and faith, he or she would trust in you. So thank you, Lord, for this time. And now as we uh, cap everything off, I pray that we would take this with with us and use it as you see fit in our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.